even though I am not going through uh, the chapter 2 of Mark, uh, I'll start out with a passage of Scripture in Mark. And uh, if you notice on the back of your bulletin, I, because I'm using so much Scripture today within the Gospels, I want you could follow behind in that those passages, because uh, I do want you to see uh, what I'm looking at this morning, which would be a kind of a historical message uh, during the holiday, and that is the supernatural strength of Christ's death. Let's have a word of prayer before I go any further. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you for sending him into the world to accomplish so great of salvation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you finished everything the Father gave you to do. You ascended into heaven and you are now seated at the right hand of the Father. And someday you're coming back again. Until that time, Lord, allow your people to be attentive to not only the reading of the Word of God, the studying of the Word of God, but the hearing and doing of the Word of God. For we know, Lord, we are your workmen in the harvest fields to bring the gospel to to those who have not yet heard it. And Lord, strengthen us in the faith so we can be bold and clear-minded to be able to take the Word of God to those who haven't heard it yet. And Lord, so this morning, just again, show us what took place on the cross so we can be confident that what you accomplished was accomplished because of the power of God. And I pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so. It's not uncommon this time of year for people to make comments about all the images that they have come in contact with concerning the death of Christ, or Christ's death. You hear people say things like, it was terrible and sad that Jesus had to die as he did. It was a cruel and a violent death. No one can, can, can deny that. In fact, it was a terrible and humiliating death, even as the Gospel of Mark tells us. And if you look at Mark chapter 15, In verse number 19, it informs us they kept beating him. They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. So, again, in the scripture, it does let us know that it was violent. Often people go no further than these images, though, and leave Jesus helplessly wallowing on the cross in somewhat of a defeat. Even bystanders at the scene of the cross shouted statements highlighting his weakness and his helplessness while on the cross of crucifixion. Again, in Mark chapter 15, look at verse 29. It says, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself. Come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross 
so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. So, again, humiliation, cruelty, demeaning comments were all part of it. But I never really liked the thought that Jesus was often pictured as only on the cross. If we go back and examine more closely what the Scriptures actually record concerning Christ's death, I am sure that you'll walk away with a different appreciation and a heightened understanding of this event because Jesus' death was probably the most magnificent thing that ever happened. And it, was, it, it happened by the most magnificent person who ever lived. His death was nothing less than supernatural. So as you and I stand beside the cross this morning, looking up at Jesus, once again, we should conclude like the Roman centurion in Mark chapter 15 and verse 39, when the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. That's where we must conclude today, that Jesus was the Son of God. So let's together be strengthened by the Scriptures as we learn more about our Lord Jesus Christ. And may those who have never heard about him listen and consider his unique person. I think we can be assured that he is the God-man even in death. And I pray that faith will be granted to you so that you may believe and be saved. And those who already know him as their Lord and Savior, you would be bolstered in your faith and strengthened in your faith. Now I want you to consider this morning the supernatural strength of Christ's death. And while and what he was accomplishing uh, according to the Father's will on the cross, I want you to notice today six observations about Christ's death. And here's the first one. And I want you to take your Bibles and look at John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. Also, all the verses I'm going to use are listed on the back of the bulletin, so you can follow with that if it's I'm going too fast. And that's the first. The first thing is this. The first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus' strength is seen in his authority over death. In John chapter 10, in verse 17, we can see Jesus' authority over death where it says in verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me because I laid down my life so that I may take it up again. In other words here that Jesus is able to take something back that he lays down. The mood indicates the relationship of an action of reality the objective possibility of someone laying down their life in death and then taking it back again depends on certain objective factors. In other words, Jesus would need to be able to do such a thing, which was clearly unheard of. It indicates that Jesus would need to be greater and more powerful 
than the greatest level, leveler known to mankind. And that, of course, leveler is the power of death. Who can lay their life down and then take it back again? Who can do that? We, we have no authority or power over death. Now, in John chapter 10, verse 17, look, or 18, it says this, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. And notice what it says, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So this means that Jesus was not powerless in the hands of his enemies. Jesus had absolute authority. And to put it in another way, Jesus had the freedom of choice and the right to act or to decide in and of himself concerning his own death. In other words, he had absolute power in regard to the death and regard to life. Now, another example was when they came to arrest Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 18. The answer, uh, it said they answered him when they were looking for Jesus, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with him. So when he said to them, I am he. Now we know the term I am is the term God gave Moses when Moses went before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said, who should I tell Pharaoh who sent me? And he says, tell them, tell him I am sent you. Meaning that God had no beginning and no end. God was not created. He always was. I am. I always will be. And so this is the sense where Jesus says, I am he, meaning that I'm God. And it says in the word of God, and they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, when Jesus uttered that title of deity, I am he, if they fell to the ground, well, then they had no power to take Jesus unless he voluntarily gave himself to them. See, Jesus gave his life. No person took it from him unless he let them take it. See, that means you have authority. And nobody has authority in that area except God. Nobody. So his death was supernatural. A second thing I want you to notice, this brings me to John chapter 19, in verse number 28 and 29. The second thing is Jesus' strength is seen in his command over his mental faculties while he was dying. In John chapter 19, verse number 28, it says this, And after this, Jesus, knowing all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. So, was his mind unclear? Was his mind clouded by the terrible suffering that he was being put through? To the point he was delusional and didn't know what was going on? The answer to that is no. His mind reviewed the entire scope of the prophetic word and checked them off one by one, right down where it said in Psalm 69, verse 21, I am thirsty. 
It says they also gave him gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. And then, of course, in John 19, verse 29, a jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. So Jesus right there was indicating that he knew the full scope of all the prophecies that must be fulfilled, checked them all off to this very one. And so our Lord was in full possession of his mental faculties on the cross. That's the second thing. A third observation is this. And of course, also John chapter 19, that Jesus' strength is seen as his control over his physical, his physical composure while dying. In verse number 19, chapter 19, verse 30 of John, his full composure of his body movements. For it says in verse 30, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That our Lord's head did not drop down helplessly on his chest. No, his head did not fall, but Jesus consciously, calmly, and reverently bowed his head because whatever he had to finish in the physical realm, he had accomplished. And when that was accomplished and brought to an end, and he completely accomplished redemption, then at that point, he bowed his head reverently and gave up his spirit. So he paid the redemption price in full. It was at that point, the point of completion, that he bowed his head fully in control of all his bodily movements. And then, In Matthew chapter 27, moving to Matthew chapter 27, we see something else that's very significant. In his control over his physical composure while dying, that he was in full control of his voice. In Matthew 27, look at verse 46. It says, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli. Lama Sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then verse number 50 again. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And it's important to note in these details that in the last three hours of his life, Jesus demonstrated that he still possessed his physical strength. He had not reached utter exhaustion. His voice was strong and able to speak loudly. As a matter of fact, it is the same voice where it's recorded in John 11, verse 45, when he called Lazarus from the grave, where the Bible says, and when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. So Jesus was in full control, and instead of being conquered by death, He was willingly yielding himself to it and conquering it at the same time. So Jesus was not 
wallowing in death and death somehow taking him over and almost consuming him. According to Scripture, in the details, we see the strength of Christ in the death of Christ. A fourth observation is this. In Matthew 27, verse number 50, that Jesus' strength is seen in his volitional power over his own spirit while dying. In Matthew 27, verse 50, it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielding up his spirit. Jesus had volitional power over his spirit. That is, in the material part of his being, he had power over it to the point in which he commanded his spirit to leave his body. In John 19.30 it says, and gave up his spirit. And then in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So again, Jesus had full authority and power over even the immaterial part of his being, his soul. The very thing that we can't see. The spirit of him and he had control over, showing his strength while he was dying. No one has that kind of authority except God. No one could display this kind of composure except they were given that power. And of course, Jesus Christ had that power. But there is a fifth thing, and that is this, that Jesus' strength is seen in the prophetic fulfillment of his death. And this brings me to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 31 through verse 37, where it is important to note here when reading this text, that Jesus was already dead, that the two thieves at the end of the day were still alive. They have been on the cross for the same amount of time. And notice what it says in John chapter 19, verse 31. It says, Then the Jews, because it was the, the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now, this was a common practice for those who were being crucified. In verse number 32, notice what it says. And the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him, in verse 33, but coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. That's very important. Because death by crucifixion, though exceedingly painful, was a very slow death. Some lingered two or three days before being completely overcome by exhaustion and ultimately by suffocation. Because that's how one really died. It was a long, painful 
humiliating, suffering death that a person would really feel they were paying for their crime. That's what the point was. It was the worst kind of death anyone could die, and the Romans came up with it. And even the Romans themselves loathed this type of death. It was the last thing that you would use on someone who was a criminal. It would much be much easier to be hung or shot through with a, with a spear or something like But this was a long, painful death. But it is interesting for Jesus to have been already dead only after six hours was not normal in Roman crucifixion. That is, unless Jesus voluntarily laid down his life by himself and that God was in full in full control of every detail so that all that was written about him in the Psalms and the prophets would be fulfilled. And what was that to be fulfilled? That no bones of his body would be broken. Right? In John chapter 19, verse 34, it says, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Verse 35, And he was, he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe, verse 36, for these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. Psalm 34, verse 20. And again, another scripture, and they shall look on him whom they have pierced. In Psalm 34, 20, it says he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. So according to prophetic fulfillment, Jesus did not have his bones broken on the cross because everything was in the control of God from the beginning to the end. That means Christ was an amazing person. He was unlike anyone else. He was truly the God-man on the cross. And there are more details to bring out, but for the sake of time, I won't do that. But there's a sixth thing and a last thing, and it's this, that Jesus' strength is seen in the power of this event over the natural and the spiritual realms. In Matthew chapter 27, verse number 51, Jesus' death broke open the way to God. Notice what it says in verse number 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks split. See, all the types and all the symbols of the Old Testament and all the things that went on in the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple built by Solomon, all the worship, all the animal sacrifices, the, all the things that went on and all the furniture of the temple right up to the curtain that blocked anyone from going into that space, the Holy of Holies, except the high priest once a year, is now torn in two, completely torn to pieces, that the types and the symbols of the Old Testament become a reality as they are given substance and fulfillment in Christ right on the cross. Now. 
that's very important because the cross is the very place, the flesh of Christ being torn is the very place where Christ's flesh is represented in the curtain that blocked anyone from going into the presence of God. Now that curtain is torn in two. That means that God opens the way to himself without all the symbols, without all the ritual, without all the priesthood, because he becomes the high priest. He becomes the sacrificial land. He becomes the one who dies in the place of sinner. He becomes the one who finishes everything in behalf of sinner. He becomes the one that anyone could come to in faith and repentance and believe without any of those things and be saved because he is the Savior. He has done all those things. In Mark chapter 15, in verse number 33, it says, When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in verse 37, Jesus uttered, a loud cried and breathed his last, and the veil of the temple, verse 38, was torn in two from top to bottom. So according to the book of Hebrews, all true Christians have confidence to enter his presence because Jesus broke open the veil by his death. So we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood and death of Jesus Christ. It is to come to the mercy seat at any time, in any posture, in any place, and in repentance and faith, and be able to have access. It is a permit for believers to pour out their hearts at all times before the Lord without going through to a priest, a human priest, And you see, one can approach God with confidence and full assurance. For it tells us in Romans, excuse me, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 19. And then in verse 22, it says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So see, those who, again, repent of their sins and go directly to God, and believe in Jesus Christ alone, our our high priest, our substitute, our mediator, for the forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation, have access to God through the death of Jesus Christ. Again, making Christianity so very exclusive that all the other religious systems must actually discard everything that they're believing in as to how one is right with God to come to Jesus Christ and knowing that Jesus Christ is the only one who by his by his death tore the veil in two he's the only one 
the veil meaning his own flesh, his flesh tore and accomplished eternal salvation for all those who would believe in Christ. And all we need to do now is go to him by faith. There's no other obstacles. There's no other rituals. There's not ten things I have to do. There's none of those things. Christ cleared the way completely to go to God. That's what he did. He he got rid of everything. He fulfilled everything. He did everything that was that needed to be done so we can truly and honestly be saved by faith. That's what Jesus did. Jesus his death also did something else. Jesus' death broke open the grave and the power of death. Where it says in Matthew 27, verse 52, the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Now the Lord's death was not a tragedy that brought everything to an end. No, his death was took the sting of death. And of course, remember from Corinthians, the sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law, where it says in Corinthians The sting of death is sin, and of course the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. It is by his death alone that we are saved. So here's the message that preserves the truth of the gospel, that the sacrificial body of the Lord Jesus Christ and the shed blood of Christ announces the only way of salvation. Jesus defeats Satan and death on the cross, and that would be a third thing he does, that his death broke the strong grip and power of Satan. See, nothing rocks the plans and power of Satan more than the resurrection in Matthew 27, verse 53, and coming out of the tombs. These people come out of the tombs. These saints that believed in Jesus come out of the tombs after his resurrection. And they entered the holy city and peered to many. See, it couldn't happen. No one else could be raised from the dead unless Jesus himself first was raised. Because something had to be taken care of between his death and his resurrection. There There had to be an enemy that needed to be vanquished. And that was death itself. And the one who had the power of death, at least to keep people under the power of death, and that was Satan himself. They had to be taken care of. If they were not taken care of, no one could rise from the grave. And because Christ rose from the grave, and because these saints, after his resurrection, rose from the grave, because Christ removed the power of death, and because Christ removed the power of Satan and defeated those things, then you and I can rise from the dead. We will rise from the dead for those who believe in Christ. We have a narrative in in the Word of God in Luke chapter 11 where the rulers are have accused Jesus of casting out demons by Beelzebub or the prince of demons and Jesus exposes their folly by saying, if Satan cast out demons, his kingdom will be divided and will fall. That's common sense. But in Luke 11, verse number 20, it says, but if I cast out demons, 
meaning Jesus, by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed, but when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. That's what Jesus did with Satan. Jesus was stronger than him, came into his territory, and disarmed him. That's what he did. And where did he do that at? He did that on the cross and in his resurrection. So in other words, Jesus has come into the strong man's house and has has overpowered him, the evil one. It is Jesus who overpowers Satan and takes his possessions away from him. So you see, Jesus is a great disruption to the world, a world controlled by Satan. Jesus has come to plunder his kingdom, to overtake it, and all those who trust Jesus as Lord and Savior are also overcomers and are rescued from the tight clutch of the enemy and brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and they will never be able to be plucked back out of the Father's hands and out of the clutches of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are secure in Christ forever and ever. And even it says in Hebrews, But he, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. See, Jesus Christ is the one who is the conqueror, who subdues and overtakes all his enemies. And someday he will come and display his kingly rule over this world as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that's going to be a time where we see those things work out in a way that we never have before. See, the the answer to peace in Israel is Christ. There's no solution to the peace problem in the Middle East. You realize that, right? The solution to that problem is Christ. Because Israel is rejecting their Messiah, and so therefore they're on their own. They're doing things in the flesh. They're secular in the land. But someday the Lord will accomplish the rest of his mission and bring the gospel to the nation of Israel. And they will, like Ezekiel says, become alive. The dry bones will take on flesh. The Spirit of God will come upon them, and they will become alive, and they will repent and believe and they will see him whom they have pierced and be saved. So that's going to happen. See, that's the solution to the Middle East. Just putting band-aids on a big, big wound, that's all you can do. Christ is the answer. Once they start turning to Jesus Christ, well, then the solution will come very soon. So the great tragedy is that life in this world in reality, is really spiritual warfare. But the only ones aware of this spiritual conflict are discerning believers because they are armed with truth. They are armed with confidence in Christ. Every time they hear the word of God, their faith gets bolstered and becomes stronger. 
and they have a, a greater determination to live in this world even with its sufferings and its problems for the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are not Christians are unaware of this warfare because they are blinded by sin and they love darkness rather than they love the truth and love light and are persuaded for the most part that all is well with them and they don't realize the terrible doom that is awaiting them. They don't realize that they're under the wrath of God. They don't realize they have to be rescued. They need to see they need to be rescued and the only way they can is by the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we live in a world when it comes to defining anything spiritual, it sounds like a bunch of gobbledygook. Instead, we need to believe and proclaim boldly and clearly that Christ is the only hope for people of this world. Jesus' atoning sacrificial death with the problem, took care of the problem of human sin and in doing so destroyed the work of the devil and now we are set free to from his grasp in order to daily walk and daily fellowship with our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that brings me full circle back to where I started in Matthew 27, verse 54, because Jesus broke open the eyes of unbelieving Gentiles to see who he really was. And, of course, that is exemplified in the passage about the centurion. The Roman centurion, where it says in verse 54, Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Now, for a Gentile, for a Roman soldier, to come to that conclusion, He was doing the same thing you and I were doing this morning. He was watching everything that was going on on the cross. He was listening to everything that was happening concerning this man Jesus along the political grapevine of how information is passed back and forth. And he was taking it all in. And as he was taking it all in, he came to one conclusion, which was the right conclusion that this truly was the Son of God. Now, it doesn't say further that this man trusted and repented in Christ as Lord and Savior, but you know what? The possibility is very high. He had all the truth. He had the right understanding of who Jesus was. He saw that on that cross, this was more than a man. He saw and heard everything that was happening from not only uh, what Jesus was saying, but even the the veil of the temple being rent. He heard it all. The earthquake that came, the darkness that fell in the middle of the day. And he concluded the correct thing, that this is the Son of God. And you know what? You can conclude the correct thing too and still not be saved because there's something we have to do. Right, and it's 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 what God grants to us. It's how God accomplishes salvation. We turn from our sin of unbelief, and we trust and embrace Jesus Christ alone as our Lord and Savior. And He, in that act, we're justified. How by works? No, by faith. 
By faith in who? By faith in Christ. We're justified just like Noah, just like Abraham, just like every other saint. From the beginning until now, we're justified by faith. And that has all been done by our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. So it was a supernatural death. It was a death that accomplished great salvation. It it was a death that finished everything. So today, you may need to come to be saved, to repent of your sin, to believe in Jesus Christ, to receive him as your own Lord and Savior. Today may be a day that you consecrate yourself in the sense that you haven't been living as you ought to live as a believer, and today is a day to give yourself over in consecration to the Lord and to his service. And if you have been living for him and have been serving him and have been following him, today is the day your faith increases because you realize details that were in the text of Scripture that you didn't see before that makes you confident that he is who he said he is. He accomplished what he said he would accomplish. He accomplished everything Scripture said he would accomplish. And that means once you trust in him, your salvation in Christ is secure forever. And that is a very encouraging and a motivating thought to live for Christ. Amen? Until he takes you out, until he finishes the work in your life, he's accomplished it all. Let's pray. Lord, this morning I do thank you today just by again reviewing the things that took place on the cross of Calvary. Thank you, Lord, for those who know you, that we can be great, have great confidence that we are saved by believing in Jesus Christ, that we can take great confidence that the Spirit of God has been given to us so we can live the Christian life, so we can put the whole armor of God on to stand up against the wiles of Satan, so we can... In the end, Lord, pray and take up the sword of the Spirit and be able to fight in the battle that you've given us, knowing that we already have the victory in Christ Jesus. So today, Lord, accomplish in the people's minds and hearts the thing that you know needs to be accomplished. And I pray today glory would be brought to your name by the Scripture and by what you accomplished in behalf that all of us, would come to the same conclusion as the centurion, that we would say today, truly, this was the Son of God. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.